From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with Liz Kennedy from the Center for American Progress about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the potential voter suppression in 2017. And after that, Winston-Salem Journal editorial page editor and author from Rage to Redemption in the Civilization Age, John Raley returns to discuss a new film that will premiere on PBS later this month focusing on the dark chapter of eugenics in North Carolina. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. You would think that voter suppression was a thing of the past. It harkens back to days of Jim Crow segregation, poll taxes, and literacy tests. But a wave of legislation from various states, though more sophisticated, appear to have the same nefarious objectives that seem to have turned back the clock to a time before the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Joining us today to discuss voter suppression is Liz Kennedy. Kennedy is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, located in Washington, D.C. Liz Kennedy, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me, Byron. Um, With all the discussion around voting rights, it seems that the best place to start this discussion would be if you could provide just a quick scenario, Reader's Digest version of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, how was this significant to this conversation? Harkens back to Absolutely. Uh, great place to start because the Voting Rights Act that, as you say, was passed in 1965 really did um, more change the game. To have the same uh, it was the first in a long time federal to a time voting, rights the protection. Of voting rights protection. The Act American people decided together as a country that Joining they were not to going to just let the continued Kennedy practices in many particularly formerly Confederate DC. states um, continue to deny the African-American uh, citizens in those states their right to have their voices heard at the polls. So we all know uh, the stories of Selma, the March on Washington, um, really the, the civil rights struggle, people who lost their lives, extraordinary courage and bravery to say, uh, these are my rights, this is my voice, I need to be represented by the people in government in order to, you know, effectuate change and get everything, you know, my rights and freedoms as an American. So the federal government was finally moved to act. They passed a federal law, and one of the most important pieces there said, if one of these states that had engaged in, you know, centuries of slavery, but then some of the northern jurisdictions were covered as well. They looked at places that had been keeping uh, communities of color, particularly in that instance, African Americans, uh, away from the polls. And they said, if there is a history and practice of racial discrimination in voting, then if these jurisdictions want to change their voting laws, they have to clear it with a federal court first. And that so, would be something, just for the record, that would be, that'd be section of the Voting Rights Act? That's correct. That okay. was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act in Section 2, it just bars racial discrimination in voting. So the whole country um, bars racial discrimination in voting. Very, very important. Um, Section 3 says that if a uh, state is found to be, uh, in, you know, discriminating against people based on their race uh, or, you know, language uh, for voting in voting, then the state can be um, required to pre-clear their laws. But the real heart of the law was saying, instead of what had been happening, which is to say, and now where we are, and folks in North Carolina know this better than a lot of people in the country, if 
it used to be and is now that in some of these states, the states can move forward with passing discriminatory laws, and then voters have to go through the arduous process of proving that those laws are discriminatory in court. Litigation takes a long time, and in the meantime, they are not being able to actually vote at the ballot box. So the Voting Rights Act really flipped that on its head because suddenly it was the states that had to show that their voting changes weren't going to be discriminatory. And that's changes just like closing polling places. You know, the things that states used to be able to just get away with and not tell anybody, now those folks had to tell the federal government if they were going to change the voting rules. And it really gave a lot of protections to communities of color. Um, but only what was their due. We only needed this Voting Rights Act because of the just shameful uh, efforts by politicians to keep people of color away from the ballot box. And that is exactly what we have seen happening again now that those protections were removed. And I'll just uh, quote again Justice Ginsburg's dissent in the Shelby uh, County v. Holder decision when the Supreme Court, with a 5-4 vote, took away the major protections of the Voting Rights Act. She said, because they said, oh, it's not that bad anymore, basically, and oh, it's not fair to states uh, to do this. But she said, getting rid of these protections against racial discrimination in voting, which are so shocking and shameful, getting rid of these protections because you don't see the racial discrimination happening right now is like getting rid of an umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And so now we've seen in the last several years really so many voters being hit with these cuts to voting rights with these attack on voting access, uh, and a lot of voters are finding it much harder to have their voices heard, and it's a huge problem for American democracy. And, we're, and, we're, and trust me, we're, we're definitely going to get to the Shelby case. I, I want to uh, have you comment on something first, though, uh, specifically to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, since it came, for lack of a better word, and please correct me if my language is incorrect here, uh, it says it came with mandates, which invariably makes those who claim to be purveyors of liberty uncomfortable. How were those mandates not uh, government overreach in your in your view, ma'am? Sure. The point is that this law was defending fundamental constitutional rights for citizens in our democratic republic. And it is not an overreach to require states and jurisdictions not to burden the right to vote of American citizens on account of their race. So all the states had to do who were covered was submit a filing saying this isn't going to impact American citizens on account of their race. And the Justice Department and the federal courts generally let all of those changes go through. The only times that states were not able to enact these changes is when a federal court or the Justice Department actually found these changes would have uh, racially retrogressive effects, would actually dilute uh, and distort the voting power and, you know, just negatively affect, overburden the voting rights of people of color. So to say that it is uh, a federal overreach to stop states from discriminating against American voters on account of their skin color is just not a uh, argument that I accept. It is, it is improper for states to be discriminating against voters on account of their race or ethnicity or gender uh, or religion. Um, and so the Voting Rights Act, because of the historical and then continuing um, violent efforts to keep people of color after the United States had fought a civil war 
about the rights and privileges of American citizenship and said, you know, through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that – and then, of course, the 19th Amendment uh, – but of that, course. you know, American citizens all have an equal right to vote. The southern states were saying, oh, sure, 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 that's a right. But in order to exercise that right, if you're a black person, you have to guess how many bubbles are on this bar of soap. Or you have to take a test, and I'm not going to tell you why you failed, but you failed again. Try again next time. You know, or we're going to continue a campaign of just violence and attack people who come and try to register to vote. And so, you know, a violent reign of terror, frankly. So the idea that the federal government shouldn't step in and say, no, that is not acceptable. We together as one American political country, community, the United States of America say, as a federal law, here's how we are going to protect every American's right to vote, including the rights of black people in the South. That is what America stands for, should stand for, has stood for in the world as a shining city on the hill, as an example of what democracy should mean for people. And we cannot uh, take a step back. We need to move forward together uh, and not take a step back on protecting American citizens from racial discrimination in voting. Well, one last thing on the, on the Voting Rights Act, if you could explain uh, to all of us. Um, the Voting Rights Act has um, periodically had to be reauthorized. Um, what was the rationale for that procedure as opposed to it just being law? Why was, what was, the, need, why was the need historically for uh, the reauthorization? Well, it's a pretty standard procedure for many laws to be, uh, require reauthorization in the education space, in the environmental space. So, you know, every few years there is, uh, and in this instance, I think there was a there was a 20-year window when they reauthorized it uh, in 2006. It might have been a 25-year window. You know, this the, this law, so as to con- reconsider uh, practices on the ground, is this still needed? And the point was, in 2006, George W. Bush signed the law. I believe 96 senators voted for its reauthorization. Uh, voting rights was absolutely not a politicized question, uh, you know, for decades. Again, after the civil rights struggle uh, really achieved a, a, a key victory with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, many people felt, uh, you know, that we needed to continue to, to fight the battles when certain jurisdictions were trying to avoid the protections of the Voting Rights Act. But we had the tools. Uh, but now there just has been a massive rise in an effort to gain and hold political power in a really democratically illegitimate way. Because if you are gaining and holding political power, not by convincing people to vote for you, but rather by keeping people who might disagree with you away from the polls, by closing polling locations in these communities, by cutting off early voting uh, periods of time so that it's harder for folks who are working two jobs or folks mm-hmm. with child care or elder care responsibilities, people challenged with transportation. You know, if you're requiring only some forms of a strict kind of identification for people to even cast their vote once they've been able to be registered, now you are just trying to hold on to power rather than actually win the consent of the governed. And that is, of course, what our democracy uh, is meant to be based on. So this is a real dagger to the heart of our American political system, uh, and we need to make sure uh, to stand together and push back. So, so since you've given us that wonderful synopsis of the Voting Rights Act, then along comes, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Shelby County versus Holder. Um, specifically, what did that decision do? So specifically, that decision uh, said that the formula that determined the application of the preclearance provision was no longer constitutionally acceptable. So it 
uh, struck down actually Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which contained the formula, and therefore made Section 5, which was the preclearance provision, inoperable. So with that said, um, was there um, – Chief, Chief Justice Roberts uh, wrote the uh, majority opinion on that. He said it was unconstitutional. Did it violate the 15th Amendment? Did it violate the 14th Amendment? Was there an amendment that it violated it? Uh, how did he reach this conclusion? I believe, I mean, what he said was that it violated essentially the state's rights, that it violated uh, state's the rights. The Tenth Amendment. Well, that's a, uh, I don't believe he situated the decision based on the Tenth Amendment. Okay. He, yeah, he revived the doctrine of states' rights that had uh, heretofore been unheard of since, uh, for a very long time, since that essentially harkens back to questions of segregation right. when you used to hear... Interposition that, and nullification types of language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the point. He's saying that it is, it is uh, you know, it's, it's unfair to states to be treated unequally because some of them used to practice racial discrimination. And he said, uh, but, but what he was really doing was prioritizing these kind of amorphous states' rights and ignoring the very real impact that these states were uh, were exercising and overburdening some of their voters rather than others. So I think that it is uh, really the wrong move to prioritize this idea of states' rights, which, as you say, uh, absolutely is through the lineage of nullification, of segregation, um, of all of these just really horrible, ugly chapters in our country's history, you know, common history. Uh, and in, instead of looking at the actual cost to uh, personal American voters, to our fellow citizens, uh, to people who are being kept from the polls on account of their race. Uh, so I certainly wish that uh, that the Voting Rights Act had been upheld in that decision. Well, you you mentioned um, some Declaration of Independence language when you uh, said the, the consent of the governance. I was struck by the whole notion that the state would be burdened um, more so than the people. I mean, I mean, we were founded on the idea that of the consent of the governed. Um, you, you, you err on that side, don't you? At, in, at least in civics class, don't you err on that side of the governed? I certainly do. <laughs> I mean, I think that that is absolutely the question. And it is so, it's so interesting. I really think we need to um, develop, again, an understanding of what fair representation is supposed to mean in our American uh, democratic society. You know, democracy is meant to be based on the equal rights of every citizen. And the government is democratic to the extent that it is responsive to every citizen uh, considered as political equals. And instead, you know, we're really going back to these issues where redistricting and gerrymandering has been so much worse since the 2010 uh, section, and that is another way in and, which... And we're definitely going to discuss that, because there's some specific questions I want to ask you about that whole gerrymandering piece uh, uh, as it relates, you know, to some of this voter suppression. Um, one, one thing, I, um, if you're just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with Liz Kennedy from the Center of American Progress, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Um, let's talk to me, uh, if you will, about the aftermath of the Shelby County decision and, and, and those states that were under uh, the Voting Rights Act in Section 5, what happened? And, and mind you, we are broadcasting from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, so go right ahead. Tell us what happened. <laughs> well, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, uh, North Carolina particularly said uh, one of the state legislators announced, now we're moving forward with the full bill. Uh, so North Carolina changed something that had been um, a 
uh, a voter identification provision, to be sure, but I believe that they were going to be accepting a wider range of identifying documents. Suddenly now, uh, the monster suppression bill in North Carolina included doing away with same-day registration, doing away with you know major cuts to early voting, doing away with the pre-registration program that had enabled 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds to pre-register to vote when they got their first driver's licenses, which is really an important L- listen, moment. I'm going to cut you off for just a second. Will you sure. just take a moment and explain why the pre-registration is so important? Sure. You know, people, 16 and 17-year-olds often, they're the folks that are getting their first-time driver's license, and driver's license bureaus are required to offer voter registration services. We know that when young people become active uh, right at their first election, they are much more likely to continue to vote through their uh, through their lives. Once you start voting behavior early, it continues. If you miss your first election, you often don't think of yourself as an active participant in our democracy. And of course, also when people are in high school, you could do high school drives uh, where folks can just register to vote right there in their American history classes, for example. So, and the point, so it's very effective. It has definitely been shown to increase youth voting. And why on earth, when the state of North Carolina had already set up a successful pre-registration program, uh, why would the state legislature want to decommission that program and say, this has been working great for young voters, now we're going to make it stop? And I think that many of your listeners may know that the Fourth Circuit, when the North Carolina law was challenged in court as being racially discriminatory, uh, the Fourth Circuit came back and said that the state legislatures had targeted the tools that had been used by African Americans to vote with almost surgical precision was the words of the court. So we know that the state legislature actually requested racial use data on the various voting programs, and then they cut back the programs that had been found uh, for, you know, that black folks used more frequently than white folks, and yet they didn't place any other restrictions on, for example, absentee balloting. So the Fourth Circuit struck that down uh, as well they should have done. It was really, and yet, even then, uh, North Carolina, again, as I'm sure that some of your listeners experienced, um, was still making cuts to early voting. Uh, I believe it was the... Uh, a Republican county board uh, official was saying was encouraging uh, the, the local county boards of elections to further cut uh, election early early voting times and uh, you know voter access. So and and in fact, in places where they did restrict early voting, uh, voter petition rates fell. And the point here that I think we really need to underscore is that the integrity of American elections absolutely depends on every American citizen having the opportunity to go cast their ballot. That is how we make decisions together as a political community. That is the only way that we are going to be able to chart the course for our country and our communities. And everyone has the right to exercise their voice and uh, deserves responsive, reflective representation. So when these cuts are made, uh, it is really cutting to the heart of what it means to have free and fair elections um, and American democracy that we can be proud of. And there were further, you know, further uh, issues throughout the country, Texas as well. Um, Texas had had its strict voter ID law uh, had actually been um, stopped by Section 5 because Texas told the Justice Department that 600,000 uh, registered Texas voters did not have one of the forms of, they only would accept five forms of documentary uh, photo ID. And for example, they would accept a hunting license, but not a student ID. (laughs) And there were absolutely way more people of color who were disproportionately without one of these uh, five strict forms of photo ID 
So the Justice Department had said, no, that law will disproportionately burden voters of color. Uh, you can't pass, you can't put that law in place. And yet, as soon as Shelby County came down, you know, that day, I think the Attorney General of, of Texas tweeted essentially, um, now the law is in place. We're going forward with the law. The law is now in place. And that law, which a federal judge ended up finding was intentionally racially discriminatory, that law was in place for the 2014 uh, gubernatorial elections. That's the thing. When these laws are now in place, when these laws are not blocked, these racially discriminatory voting laws are no longer blocked by the protections of the Voting Rights Act, they are in place for these elections that voters can't have their voices heard in, and voters can't get those elections back. How is it uh, that every study that, that I've seen, and I haven't, I haven't seen every study, but every study that I've seen, and correct me if you have a contrarian perspective here, suggests that voter fraud cases are extremely rare. We're, we're talking like, I don't know, black soft shell turtle rare. I mean, it, it, it just, they, they don't happen. But legislators in some of these states that, are under, that were under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act uh, continue to uh, enact these laws on a problem that diversity doesn't exist, why do you believe this type of legislation continues to have traction? You are completely right that voter fraud is vanishingly rare. You are more likely to be hit by lightning. Um, and it is unfortunate that... Uh, People have been told for so long that there is a problem with voter fraud because it is not for lack of trying that people have not found, you know, hardly any actual examples of impersonation voter fraud. The Bush Justice Department set out to look under every rock for an example of voter fraud because, frankly, it uh, some uh, Republican state legislators and uh, some conservatives have an agenda to restrict voting rights, particularly for people of color, for low-income people, for young people, for people that they think are less likely to vote for them. I find that extremely sad and, uh, and extremely problematic and not at all acceptable in a democracy. Uh, again, the integrity of our elections depends on every American, every eligible American being able to vote. Um, but instead, we have this toxic myth of voter fraud that is now being expressed from the highest possible offices. Uh, you know, this, this baloney about millions of illegal votes being cast in the election. Uh, so this toxic myth of voter fraud continues to be spread for the purpose of giving cover to these toxic voter suppression laws that are actually keeping eligible Americans from voting. So it is uh, really just essentially propaganda uh, to try to convince you know, otherwise, good-hearted Americans, oh, I guess I have to, you know, I guess this idea of voter identification isn't that bad because we have to protect against voter fraud. No. The fraud here is that eligible Americans are being overly burdened. You know, people are already identifying themselves at the poll when you go in and say, hi, I'm Liz Kennedy. There's no reason to make it uh, more difficult for Americans to vote and register to vote. In fact, what we should be doing um, is automatically registering eligible citizens to vote, uh, as Oregon did in this recent election, and they had a wonderful experience um, with the program, highest ever registration rates um, and highest ever participation rates. Uh, so there are tools that we can use to increase uh, voting rights and voter access, and we must absolutely stop um, this spread of voter suppression because that just should not be who we are as Americans. Well, speaking of that, um, is Shelby County, in your opinion, uh, the end on the attack of the Voting Rights Act, or, or are there uh, more um, things that, uh, on the horizon to uh, dismantle the Voting Rights Act? There certainly could be uh, greater attacks on the other provisions that still stand. Um, some people could come after the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Which, which is, you mentioned before, can you mention again, please? 
Sure. It, it, um, it bans racial discrimination in voting. So it makes it uh, illegal to discriminate against uh, voters based on their race. So that is uh, still the law of the land, um, although it is much more burdensome and difficult uh, and takes a lot of resources um, to have these discriminatory laws go into place and then have to have voters challenge them. Um, because, again, when an election has already happened, you can't get that election back. You can't get your vote in that election back. So voting is different than other places where you wait until there's an injury first and then uh, you sue afterwards. Um, and then I really uh, – we need to really be on guard for, for example, Kansas was requiring people to provide documentary proof of their citizenship before – they would process their voter registration applications. But if you just think about um, any voter registration drive that you've ever been approached in or that you maybe have participated in, people aren't walking around with their passports in their back pockets. <laughs> no, not that's the only way to Paris. I mean, no, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're, when, you're, when you're going to the grocery or when you're crossing the quad to class. Uh, so this is, you know, tens of thousands of people in Kansas were disenfranchised. Um, and this uh, is, is something that has already been um, pushed by uh, certain people who want to make it harder for people they don't like to vote, essentially. Um, and that we're going to really have to launch the kind of work that the uh, Moral Monday Coalition has done so successfully in North Carolina, we are going to have to uh, learn from you guys and launch uh, that movement nationally. A Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Any day that ends in Y, <laughs> uh, we need to be standing right. up for the fundamental right of every eligible American to cast their ballot and have their voices heard. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with Liz Kennedy from the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., um, Liz, what impact do you foresee um, uh, could uh, could occur if uh, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions is confirmed as our next attorney general? I think that would be very problematic. Uh, Jeff Sessions was rejected by the United States Senate in the 1980s for a federal judgeship because of racially discriminatory comments and actions that he had taken uh, in his time uh, earlier. None of that has changed. Um, we know that uh, he is not a friend uh, to uh, really, we think, effective enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Um, I think it might be a challenge uh, for the North Carolina litigation and for the Texas litigation uh, that the Department of Justice has done a wonderful job with. Uh, so I think that would be a, um, a real problem for fundamental civil and political rights in this country. Liz Kennedy, thank you for being on The Public Morality. It is my pleasure, Byron. Thank you so much for talking about these important issues. My pleasure. That was Liz Kennedy from the Center for American Progress. Coming up, my discussion with John Raley, editorial page editor with the Winston-Salem Journal, about an upcoming documentary on PBS about eugenics, in North Carolina. John Raley, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me, Byron. You know, it's good to have you back. Um, I know we had you on before to discuss this topic, so let's begin by you taking us through this journey. I mean, your book, uh, Rage to Redemption in the Sterilization Age, is delineated in two parts, the history of eugenics, specifically in North Carolina, and then the journey of you and your colleagues to uncover the truth. Talk about both for a moment, if you will. Okay, so um, so the you know the history of it had been you know starting in 1929, our state um, forcibly sterilized more than 7,600 men, women, and children. But most of that, uh, this program was hiding in plain sight, so it really wasn't known about. And you had you had people that talked, you know, people that happened to the the hundreds still surviving now. One of them being Nile Ramirez, who in um, 
2000, back in um, 1973, had had been the first person in the country to sue a state uh, sterilization program, and she sued North Carolina. And she was a she was a star. She was on 60 Minutes. Uh, she stood with Gloria Steinem at a press conference, and then the case fizzled out, and it was all but forgotten. And and now and all the other victims just retreated into their broken silence and. Uh, Kevin Bigos of our paper got a tip about this program back in um, in the summer of 2002, and, and he's a great reporter, and he started working it hard, and uh, and we realized we really had something, and uh, our editors here were kind enough to set up a team of us that um, went hard at it, uh, researching it um, for about um, for several months before we came out in December 2002 with a series against their will. will which revealed for the first time the brutal um, head and inner workings of this program. Uh, that led to a, to an apology from Governor Easley, um, and uh, then this long process. Uh, you know, there was there was from the very beginning. Larry, Representative Larry Womble of Winston-Salem was filing bills for compensation, but he was getting lip service from his fellow Democrats who created in, um, this program in the first place. And so this 10-year fight, more than 10-year fight, began. Uh, You recently wrote uh, uh, in an op-ed where you defined this period as the last stand of victorious bipartisanship, at least for North Carolina. Tell us why you said that and what occurred during that time. You sort of touched on it already, but I want you to say more about what occurred during that time that made you feel that way. Well, yeah, I said it was a last great stand, but uh, you know, you look at what's going on in Raleigh and D.C. now, and then, and you know, we gridlock, of course, is is nothing new. We've always had it, but it's just it's so rampant now. And um, in you know, in that time, there was a time when um, when people got things done together, and the Democrats long controlled the state, and they played. They played rough as hell, but the Republicans were playing a, a hell of a lot rougher than that even. And um, and we, we really are in danger of, of getting nothing done. So it was encouraging when you had a when you had a House Speaker, State House Speaker, then Tom Tillis, who's now a U.S. Senator, one of our U.S. Senators, who, who really believed in this and really believed he'd get it done. And he told me he'd consider it a personal failure if he didn't get this done. And and so this this white Republican crossed the aisle to work to work with um, a, a black Democrat, Larry Womble, on this, and and they um, they agreed on a few other things, but they had a mighty agreement on this, and they got it done. And I don't I don't know that you'd see that now. Um, D.G. Martin, who writes a, a a weekly column, you know, that does North Carolina Book Watch, um, he just he his column for this week touches on that and. Um, and uh, he says that that Tillis's example in this fought compensation fight that current House Speaker Tim Moore might take a lead from him in trying to get House Bill Two repealed. You 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 touched on her in your your initial answer, but I want to come back to her. Uh, tell me, tell us a little more about uh, Niall Ramirez and, and why is she so important to this story. Well, God, she, she's just a hero. She's amazing. Um, and as I said, she filed the first suit. And uh, she came from Plymouth, North Carolina, a little town on the on the way to Nags Head in northeastern North Carolina, um, where you know when she was growing up, um, you still had the you still had the you still had the descendants of um, slaves and slave owners and Confederate soldiers on the street. There was a Civil War gun battle on the Roanoke River right there. And the sign commemorating that still says, "The enemy defeated our forces," something like that, right? You know, they still call the Union the enemy there. And uh, so she was, you know, she grew up in a time where an, an African American woman, you know, nothing's supposed to. She's not supposed to uh, do anything in her life. But you know, she, here she goes on, and despite what happened to her there, despite a white doctor lying to her that this operation wouldn't be permanent. But she had one child before um, before the state got to her, and the state had said she'd be a poor mother, and her children would be dumb, and uh, 
her daughter she's she's and now but now's a great mother her daughter works in the computer industry and there there are countless stories like that so they they just, they just give the lie to the whole program i think there's maybe there's something special in the water in plymouth because um after now long after now had left and gone to new york um, the Reverend Dr. William Barber, the the great head of the NAACP in North Carolina, grew up there, and his his folks were were great um, public education people there. So maybe it's just something special that brings out the best in people in Plymouth. And, and you just touched on something that uh, I think is important for our listeners. You know, all, all along this process, there was some deception, and and this program. Uh, not exclusively, but primarily impacted African Americans, but it really was focused on poverty. If you were impoverished, and, and there was some deception along with that, is that correct? Yes, there was deception. The doctors constantly, doctors and social workers, would lie and say, you know, this this is this will be reversible. You can you can you can have this process reversed if you want. But of course, these were radical um, operations that they weren't able to reverse. Um, and then the part about poverty, yeah, it's the old story of the South that, um, you know, we think, I think, I think in these days people think it's all, it was all white and black then, but it wasn't. It's always been the rich white people, and this goes back to the Civil War and before, it's the rich white people when they control the poor people, poor whites and poor blacks, keeping them mad at each other, keeping them stirred up, keeping out unions so, so they'll never join forces. And but but this was just exactly like that. In the very beginning, it started off the 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 people being sterilized were proportionate to the general population, um, whites, um, American Indians, and African Americans. What what they all shared was almost to a person they were the poor and powerless, and this was being done to them by the prominent and powerful. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with John Rayleigh, editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal and author of Rage to Redemption in the Sterilization Age. Why did you call your book Rage to Redemption? Because um, I, it was, I, 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 I'm always looking for redemption stories, and I believe in them. And I, I think this is very much one, because there was such anger about um about this program on the part of Niall, and, and very specifically on her story. She was so angry for years, and she came to get over it through her fight and her faith in Christ, and I think she found her redemption in it. I think I found my redemption in, in finally feeling like I'd, I'd done something that was truly good in journalism, and I feel like maybe it's redemption for our state as well. Um, also, um, before I forget, uh, this will, a lot of this story will be covered in a film that will be shown at... Um, we're we're going to come up... Well, you just go ahead and talk about it, because I was going to say... That's what I was going to ask you next, to talk about the upcoming film. So Yeah, yeah. It'll, um, Dawn Sinclair Shapiro, who has covered this um, since 2010, she's been to a lot of meetings inside seat. Well, she's done a great film on it called The State of Eugenics that will be shown at Wake Forest um, this coming Thursday at 5 p.m. That's January 12th. Yes, yes, and the event is free and open to the public. So, um, and it's a it's a really good film, and I think uh, I think it it what as I said, I think I think what it really says, and what we really need to hear right now, is that um, you know bipartisanship can work, and and we it's a lesson we really need right now. And for those um, not in the Winston Salem area, check your local PBS listings because this film will be showing throughout the PBS network uh so check your local listeners toward the end of the month is that correct john exactly exactly um it will be shown um on wunc it will be shown on um january tw january 26 at 10 p.m and 9 p.m on january 30th mm -hmm. right and um you know one of the things um that i think is important i, I want to touch on having the honor of reading your book and writing a review for it um Thank you for that. Though you focus your book, and the film's focus is, is North Carolina, mm -hmm. that doesn't tell the whole story about eugenics in America. Exactly. That this was a nationwide program. Eugenics in America and eugenics in the world. I mean, yeah, it's counterintuitive, but, uh, you know, we didn't learn this stuff from Hitler's forces. 
the U.S. Import, exported people over there to teach them this stuff, including big prominent forces like the Carnegie Foundation sent guys over there. And they, you know, at the beginning, this was a progressive movement. It was seen as something good. Um, I always call it the three Ps. It, it goes from progressive to paternalistic to just prejudiced. And um, so it was going on in about 30 states. And uh, North Carolina was one of the most, uh, had one of the most abusive programs. So, you know, I always say we, we were the worst. So it's good that we're among the best in getting this done and the first to do compensation. Virginia has followed up and more states should follow. And um, Tom Tillis is now taking it national in his role in the Senate. He's already got a bill, and this is another part of the bipartisanship that was signed by President Obama that protects those that get compensation from having any federal benefits they might receive reduced. And in the course of that, Tillis is kind of educating his fellow senators about this, and most of them, many of them are shocked to find out that you know their states had these programs. So I, 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 I look for more states to compensate as, as we and then Virginia have. So, so you know, one of the things uh, that, that we tend to do is we assume that if we have our stereotypes. So uh, if you're not living in North Carolina or you're not living in Virginia, if you hold a certain stereotype about those states, mm-hmm. it's easy to assume, okay, that's North Carolina, that's Virginia. Uh, this is really prevalent in states like California. Is it, is it, was yeah, it? California was was one of the top three right up there with Virginia and North Carolina as, as far as number of sterilizations. And uh, so it really is a strange bedfellows kind of story. And, and you know, Planned Parenthood, uh, Kate, Margaret Sanger was originally um, a supporter of eugenics. So it, it's a lot of clashing theories and things. And, and interestingly enough, you would think um, progressive California would, would be all up on taking this on and talking about it, but uh, very little from their government on openly confronting their history in this. Oregon had a, liberal Oregon had a huge eugenics program. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of mind-blowing things to this story. Like um, at one point now I was being interviewed by Mike Wallace, who we think of as this great liberal, but when she was going to the interview, he said she was late because she her train got held up, and he told somebody, he said, well, she must be on CPT time, which we, <laughs> many of us, unfortunately, know what that means. And so, and the, the whole time, he's being condescending toward her, but here's now Ramirez just held her own and put him to shame. So um, lots of great mind-stretching things here. Terry Sanford, who we think of as this great liberal, and he, he was in most respects, and he got so much done in fighting poverty and standing up for education and integration, but yet on this on this point he fell way down. He he was oblivious in as in, in his term as this as this program went for the very people he was trying to help, um, poor African American women and girls. He the program shifted its focus to them while he was in office and he was oblivious to it. So it it, it, it makes us think Gosh, if a god like that can get something that big wrong, what about us mere mortals? What are we missing now? Right. You, you know, when you mentioned Terry Sanford, I, I immediately think former governor of North Carolina. I, I remember thinking that uh, when George Wallace gave his segregation today, tomorrow, forever speech, I mean, yeah. that same week, you know, yeah. Governor Terry Sanford was in Chapel Hill. Uh, saying we need to go a different way on segregation. Exactly. And so, exactly. I mean, this is the guy you're talking about. So, Yeah, exactly. This great guy that, that was such a compassionate, good leader. And um, so it makes you, like I say, it makes you think, why did he miss it? Um, and for years, I even tried to, you know, I had blinders on myself, and I said, oh, he just must not have known about it. And it was, and I should have realized this early on, but then, one one day in June, in June of um, two, several years ago, I was going through a bunch of old eugenics reports, and the biennial report, which I'd seen a bunch of those, but the biennial report from the Eugenics Board of North Carolina has a cover sheet on it, and at the bottom it says, presented to his, to his Excellency, the go- Governor Terry Sanford, which it was for each governor, and I should have seen that years ago, but that's how we can all put blinders on and, and not want to... Um, see these things and and one of his um friends was explaining to me that uh you know at that time governors were 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 limited to one term in north carolina 
and they they were doing so much and accomplishing so much. And he said, you know, I hate to say it, but those reports just must have landed on a desk and were not studied enough. And that's the sad truth. The State of Eugenics will be broadcast later this uh, month. On, uh, check your local PBS listings. It'll be said earlier. And for those in the Winston-Salem area, I urge you to join John and other panelists for this free filming and discussion moderated by Melissa Harris-Perry on Thursday, January 12th at 5 p.m. on the campus of Wake Forest University. John Rayleigh, editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal and author of Race to Redemption, the Sterilization Age. Thank you, sir, for being on the public morality. You've done the fourth estate a great service, sir. Bobby, thank you so much for those kind words, and I hope to see you and members of your audience Thursday night. Thank you so much. I will definitely be there. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was John Rayleigh. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. At the 2017 Golden Globe Awards, three-time Academy Award-winning actress Meryl Streep gave a stinging rebuke of President-elect Donald Trump. For much of the chattering class, how the speeches received was based largely on how one felt about Mr. Trump. But during her remarks, Street uttered this reflection, quote, Hollywood is crawling with foreigners, and if you kick them all out, all you have to watch is football and mixed martial arts, and those are not arts, unquote. Those remarks were greeted with a rousing applause. It may have felt good but the visual image was right out of central casting, Hollywood elites on steroids. What was the point of that statement? Was it to change hearts and minds? If so, for those who were fans of football or mixed martial arts, Streep potentially failed. If it were to coddle those who share the same perspective, I suspect mission accomplished. In a larger picture, to rightly criticize the president-elect for the manner that he invoked his privilege to dehumanize a physically challenged reporter as Street did, but then to potentially disrespect some of his supporters with the comments about football and MMA undercuts her message. None can afford to be so moral that we're unable to see the humanity of those who see the world differently. Disrespect is not canceled out by disrespect and is certainly not the path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.